Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Here we are in the upper room. The Lord's Supper has already been finished. The Lord Jesus is about to take his 11 who are left with him to Gethsemane. He only has a few hours left. And in John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, and maybe 17, 17 may be on the way, but also all of that is taking place in the upper room. If I can put it like this, the Lord's dumping a load on these disciples. He's, this is something that they're not used to. He's taught them like little children for three years. And whenever they had a question, it was usually them with the question. Then he would answer the question and he would teach in parables. He's not teaching in parables now. He, he's not teaching in illustrations. He's speaking straight. And this is serious. And I'm sure that the, the atmosphere in the room is sober. And they're so full of questions. You're going away and we can't go with you. And now, I'm, how? And he's not answering any of that. He just keeps giving them more information. More information. How much of it are they going to remember? Almost none of it. Until Pentecost, until the Holy Spirit comes, until the spirit of the master who is sitting there talking to them there that night comes back. And he will bring to their memory everything he said this evening. And they are going to marvel at him. And tonight, we're down in verse 12. And Lord willing, we'll cover verses 12 through 17. He's been talking here in, in chapter 15 about bearing fruit and I've just about beaten that to death the last couple of weeks he's talked about abiding in him and I hope we understand what it means to abide in Christ the, the very word itself abide just means to stay in place that you, you sit down you settle you dwell that's what it means to abide He's been explaining to them what it means to abide in him and to abide in his love to stay plugged into his love and then we have in verses 12 through 17, Jesus tells them something that they may never have ever heard come out of his mouth before. So let's see what goes on tonight. Beginning with verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. That one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all the things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would abide so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name he may give to you. This I command you that you love one another. This is my commandment. 
The word commandment is going to be important here in just a few minutes. So hang on to that. And he commands that they would love one another. Wait a minute. He's already commanded them to love one another. Chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then he says in verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Then in verse 17, this I command you, that you love one another. Three times in just 15 minutes. I know it's just 15 minutes because I read it aloud to myself the other day and it took me 15 minutes in a conversational reading. He says this three times in 15 minutes because it's important. He says it three times in 15 minutes because they don't yet love one another. They're concerned about themselves. They're concerned which one of them is going to be the greatest. In Mark chapter 9, verses 33 and 34, after, just after, he's told them that he's going to be betrayed, killed, and rise again the third day. They're arguing over who is going to be the greatest among them. In Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, for the third time, he tells them he's going to be betrayed, killed, and rise the third day. And as soon as he finishes telling them that, James and John come up to him and say, Will you do for us whatever we ask you? He says, What is it? That one of us may sit on your right hand and one of us may sit on your left hand. In other words, we're preempting the places of honor. And the ten weren't any better. The ten heard it and they were angry with them because they wanted the right hand and the left hand. And then in Luke chapter 22 verse 24, immediately after the Lord's Supper and he has just announced that one of them is going to betray him. One of them is going to betray him. They're arguing over who's going to be greatest. They still have no grasp whatsoever what Jesus is talking about. Love? Agape? They may be his disciples, but they're not yet brothers. They're still individuals with individual ambitions. We're starting to see the 12, or now, well the 12, because Judas will be right in there with them if he's still there. We're seeing them for what they are. They're still mere fleshly men. They're not yet indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They still have a heart of stone. It's not been replaced yet with a new heart. They're not yet converted. They're not new creatures in Christ. So Jesus has to command them to seek what is best for one another and do it. Now, this is not just for them. It's for us. We're commanded to love one another. But we who know the Lord Jesus, who have received Christ as Lord, we have him living inside of us in his Holy Spirit. And we have his love available in us for one another. But we're still not glorified. We're still indwelt with sin. And therefore, 
we have to be commanded to love one another with the love that we already have. See, Jesus sets the bar impossibly high for a bunch of unconverted fleshly men. He's not telling them to like one another. He's telling them to love one another as I have loved you. Then look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That's so obvious that you don't even need to explain it. That's a, a motto that's been applied to some veterans groups. And there, I think there's even an organization called uh, No Greater Love. I wasn't able to find it online. but And I know that there was recently a, a book published. As a matter of fact, I think the book signing was uh, this week. The story of a young man in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Who, when his unit was ambushed, uh, multiple bunker ambush, multiple machine gun ambushed, and guys were dropping all around him, that he grabbed an M60 machine gun and attacked those bunkers to save the life of his friends, and did save the life of his friends, but it cost him his life. And the name of that book is No Greater Love. I mean, this, again, it's so obvious a statement that you don't need to explain it. But He's saying this because that's how he loves them. And in just a few hours, he's going to lay down his life for them. Now look at verse 14. You are my friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That's a truism. But you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Pastor Eric did a good job this morning of describing friendship. That friendships is, is not just knowing someone. It's not being an associate with someone. I had all these folks at work that, that I used to work with that we got along fine and we worked fine, but we weren't friends. We were associates. Friendship is a closeness. It's usually built around having the same interests, the same goals, the same aims. Friendship involves trust. You, you open up to your friends. You entrust things to them that you wouldn't entrust to those who aren't your friends. Friendship involves loyalty. You'll defend your friends even if it costs you. And Jesus says, you're my friends. They probably had never heard him say that before. They're his disciples. But tonight he calls them his friends. And a little bit later on we're going to see why that would be even more staggering to them. He says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. Hmm. That's how you know whether or not you're his friend. If you do what he tells you to do. If you do his commandments. Those who hear his commandments and don't do them. Who disobey him. Who don't trust him. Who have no interest in following him. Those aren't his friends. They're just his creations. Friends affectionately comply with instructions. Uh, before we started tonight, I was talking to you about my barber. And 
I, I told him, I said, I went out, first time I went into Alex's shop, and I said, take it down to the skin. And he did. And he does. And he's the only barber I've ever had that will do that. Everybody always left a little fuzz up on top, but Alex takes it right down to the skin. And I said, that's what a friend does. But then I think, but I pay Alex to do that. <laughs> but he's, he's still a friend and a brother in Christ. And we have great conversations while he's cutting my hair. But I think about Ben. Uh, I told Ben, you know, I work with Ben. And he's my friend. And I told him, don't call me on Saturday unless it's important. Saturday is my study day. Saturday is devoted to preparation. So don't call me on Saturday unless it's important. He doesn't call me on Saturday. Because he's my friend. And he does what I've asked him to do. If you balk at Jesus giving commands to his friends. Or commanding his friends. The eleven wouldn't have. They would have had no problem with that at all. They recognize him for who he is. He's their Messiah. He's their teacher. He's their king. They know he's their king. And they recognize themselves as his disciples. They take instructions from him and they do it. That's what disciples do. You attach yourself. Well, in this case, we're going to see they didn't attach themselves. They were attached to him. But a rabbi's disciple would find this rabbi that he wanted to learn from. And he would attach himself to the rabbi. And whatever the rabbi said, he would do it. They recognized themselves as his subjects. He's the king. And it's their responsibility to obey him. It's their responsibility to submit to him and to take commands from him. See, they fully agreed with what Jesus said in Luke 6.46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I command you? So they would have had no problem at all with him saying to them, recognizing themselves for who they are, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And remember, he has to command them to love one another because they don't. They're his subjects. He's their king. And he just called them his friends. So, Verse 12 for Jesus is not mere words. This is my commandment that you love one another. He obviously loves them. Mm. Now, when they heard that, you are my friends, they would have been gratefully humbled by that. That the king of kings would say, you're my friend. And we should be too. And then verse 15, he reinforces that. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. There's no passage in the Gospels where we hear Jesus calling his disciples slaves. So what's he saying here? 
He's saying they understood their position. And just because we don't have any quotation from the Lord Jesus where he called them slaves doesn't mean at some point he didn't call them his slaves. But look back in chapter 13. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. They called him Lord. If I then, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also are obligated to wash one another's feet. Whether or not Jesus actually ever called them his slaves, they knew they were his slaves. They put themselves in the position of being his slaves. Hmm. And he says here, I no longer call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. What is master? That word Lord that we just saw back in chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. Kurios. It means owner. It means master. They were calling him their master, their owner. And here he says in verse 16 that a master, an owner of slaves, tells his slaves what to do and they do it. But he doesn't tell them why. In other words, you're a slave. Just do what I tell you to do. Because in the Greek world and in the Roman world, a slave was nothing more than a living tool. It was in the same category as a donkey or a mule. And so you didn't explain to your slaves why they were to do what you told them to do. You just said, do it. But look what he says. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. I explain to you why I tell you what to do. I've explained to you why my father sent me. I've explained to you why I'm going to lay down my life for you. I've explained to you why I have to leave this earth and go away. I've explained to you (coughs) what I will do when I return. And I've explained to you how a sinner can be saved and reconciled to God by faith in me. Yes, I'm your master. You're my disciples. But now you're also my friends. Now remember who's saying this. This is Yahweh incarnate saying this to this bunch of unregenerated, selfish, self-centered sinners. But why are they his friends? Considering who he is and who they are. Oh, he tells us in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Mm. (laughs) How do we become friends? How how did you become friends with the friends that you have? Well, first of all, you met them somehow. And once you met them in conversation, you eventually found out that you have the same interests. You have the same goal in life. And so you had more conversations. And the more conversations you had, 
the more comfortable you came with one another and the more you realized how much you have in common and then eventually gradually you became friends you chose each other Jesus says that's not how it happened with you no. I chose you he explicitly says you did not choose me how could they have chosen him they're dead in trespasses and sins there's absolutely nothing that they wanted less than a master they certainly didn't want him to be their master you remember in Luke chapter 19 Jesus is giving the parable or it may actually have been a true story we're not sure but there's a nobleman the nobleman has rule over a city and the king tells him to come to him and he's going to give him a whole kingdom and when the, the king gives this nobleman a whole kingdom to rule over the nobleman's citizens come to the king and say we will not have this man rule over us that's where we were that's where they were you weren't looking for me you didn't want me you didn't choose me because the last thing you wanted was me but I chose you I chose you mm. and what were they and what were we when he chose them and when he chose us Romans chapter 5 makes it really plain who we were when he chose us and who they were when he chose them when we were still weak in due time hang on I'm, I'm losing it now and I've been practicing this all week and now it's coming apart on me when we were still weak in due time Christ died for the ungodly for scarcely for a righteous man would one die but perhaps for a good man one would even dare to die but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us much more than having been justified by his blood we shall be saved from wrath through his life but much more than having been justified by his blood we shall be saved from wrath through him for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's what it says. So, who were they when Christ chose them? They were weak. They were unable to do anything without him. They were unable to even choose him. They were unable to live righteously. They were weak. They were ungodly, it says. Christ died for the ungodly. We're told that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only that, he says they were his enemies. How can they be his enemies? Because they certainly weren't anything that would commend themselves to him and he certainly was not the master that they wanted and yet he chose them in spite of all this he chose them for himself in spite of all that he chose us for himself now folks that's sovereign grace election yes. 
Our Lord chooses for himself whom he will choose among all the weak, ungodly sinners. And those he passes over, they won't complain. Because they didn't want him anyway. Why did the Lord Jesus Christ choose them? And why did he choose us? Look at the rest of verse 16. I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. That's why. And that your fruit would endure. Your fruit would abide. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. Why did Christ choose us? I mean, there's absolutely nothing about us that commends us to Christ. There's absolutely nothing about us before we're converted. Or even, if you can say it like this, after we're converted, in and of ourselves, that would cause God, cause the Lord Jesus Christ, cause the Father to choose us for himself out of all the other sinners he could choose. Well, why did he do that? And the answer is not the answer that we're looking for. The answer is, he chose us, he chose every other sinner that he's ever chosen to bear fruit. To bear fruit. Now, I have a hunch, this is only a hunch, that one of the reasons the Lord Jesus chose me for himself is so he can point to Satan and say, that's what I do. You remember how he served you? You remember how you had complete control over him? You remember how y'all were friends? Look what I've done in him. Look how I've changed his heart. This is what I do. It's so that the world will look at us and say, Why are you changed? Why are you different? And we can tell them, It's what the Lord has done. The voice of the martyrs uh, prayer list that I get every week. Uh, sometimes there are stories in there about people that were magicians or they were shamans or they were witch doctors or they were spiritists or, or something like that. And the Lord converted them. They heard the gospel and they were converted. And their friends come back to them later and say, you're different. Why? Fruit. That's the reason he chooses us, to bear fruit. You know, we've talked about the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Those are attributes of God that he works out through us. And when sometimes people see that, people who know us see that, and it causes them to be receptive to the gospel because they ask that question. What's, what is it about you? I remember right after I was converted and boy, you talk about a flip. From darkness into light. From servant of self and Satan to a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. From what I was to what I become because of what Christ was doing and my next door neighbor was named Jim uh, Jim and I had two little bungalows up on the side of a mountain in Asheville two little Florida bungalows no insulation 
The only insulation that was in there was what I put in there. But I mean, they were from Florida, and our landlord had taken a bulldozer and just gouged out a spot on the side of this mountain and stuck these two bungalows up there. And Jim and I had been good buddies previous, but we were renting these two, and Jim was my supplier. And if you don't know what I mean by my supplier, just ask me later, I can tell you what I mean. And after the Lord converted me, I remember that it was about, I don't know, a few months later, just a couple of months later, because I was splitting firewood uh, in my backyard. I heated with wood. We both heated with wood up there. And I'm back there splitting firewood after work one day, and Jim comes over, and he says, Harry. I said, yeah, but what's going on with you? I said, what do you mean? He says, why are you the way you are now? See, there had been such a change that he was curious why the change because he liked the change. And I stopped splitting wood. We sat down and I didn't know hardly anything. I mean, I was just ignorant as a brick other than God had transformed me. God had seized me. God had changed me me. He'd given me a new heart. And I explained to him as as much as I could and he said, oh, okay. Thanks. And he went back over to his house. And I went back to splitting firewood. And about, I guess, five or six years later, I got a letter from Jim when I was in upstate New York. He and his wife had come to faith in Christ. You know, it, it just, sometimes, the fact that the, the Holy Spirit lives in us and bears out the fruit of his presence in us, sometimes that just opens people up to where they're going to be receptive to the gospel. And then they're converted. It's like my Wellington uh, in, in Zimbabwe when a, a woman has her first baby, the title of honor that the new mother gets is the name of her baby with the word my in front of it which means mother of so uh, Pastor Juma's wife is my Priscilla and this lady was my Wellington and my Wellington lived in this village called Manicola uh, maybe I ought not to be saying this but I, I will say it You know, hopefully nobody's going to be listening to it that shouldn't be listening to it but she lived in this village called Manicola and after she was converted, oh, by the way, she had uh, a teenage son and a, t- a preteen daughter. And they started coming to the church from Manicola. Say, so what? Well, it's about nine miles. So it's a four hour walk, and you have to cross a couple of streams to get there. So they were walking every Lord's Day, leaving early in the morning to attend worship. And when she was converted, then her son Wellington was converted, and then her daughter Rebecca was converted. And they were go back to their village and they talked to people in their village about the Lord Jesus Christ, and people weren't interested. Wellington had uh, epilepsy, 
grandma epilepsy. And he was either swimming or bathing uh, in the river one day and had a seizure and drowned. And the people watched my, my Wellington to see how she, would, how she respond to that. And she grieved and she mourned and she praised God that Wellington was with Christ. And they came to her and they said, why is it that you have the peace you have? And she told them. And she told them as much as she could tell them. And they said, we want to know more. So she went back to pastor the next Lord's Day and said, you have to come to my village. You have to come because people want to hear more. And he said, tell them I will be there on such and such a day. And he came to the village and there were 90 adults waiting to hear the gospel. And there is now a church in that village. And our brother Honest is the pastor of that church. Simply because they didn't want to hear when she wanted to present the gospel to them. But when tragedy struck and they saw the peace and they saw the gratitude to Christ that she had. The fruit of the Spirit was in her, working out of her. Then they were receptive to the gospel. Sometimes we bear fruit by just using our spiritual gifts. I mean, Pastor Bob's going back. He'll be teaching the men. 26 men there are growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's fruit. Yeah. The rest of us are building up one another by serving one another. That's fruit. Even if you can't identify what your gift is, and so many people get hung up on that, what is my gift? It doesn't matter what your gift is, just use it. So what do you mean? Your gift becomes obvious in the way that you serve the church. Now, there's not going to be many teachers, and that's good, because we're warned, don't have many teachers because we face a stricter judgment on how we handle the word. But there are many who have mercy, many who have service, many who have encouragement or exhortation for one another. Your, your hospitality, the, the way you look out for one another, the fact that we pray for one another, even our giving. That's fruit. That's fruit. I've chosen you that you might bear fruit. And that your fruit would abide or remain or endure. You see, all of that, whether it's a congregation being formed in a village, whether it's one man and his wife coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or whether it's serving your brother or your sister and nobody except you two knowing about it. That, that, amaze, that, that endures. That remains. That's not ephemeral. That doesn't just waft away. That stays. That stays to eternity. That stays to the well done, good and faithful servant day. That's the kind of fruit we bear. The Lord Jesus Christ chose us to bear fruit through us. And gives us yet another prayer promise. Look what he says. Verse 16. That your fruit would abide. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name. He may give it to you. 
That's the third time he's promised that to us. The third time. You reckon it's important? In 14, 13, and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it will be done for you. And now he says, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Well, what are we asking in his name? We're asking to bear fruit. That's the context. That's what he's talking about. Whatever we ask for, that we may bear fruit for him, he's going to do it. That's one of my constant prayers. Lord, that I would bear fruit for you. That I would bear what pleases you. That I would want worthy of you. Fully pleasing you. Being fruitful in every good work. And increasing in my knowledge of you. That's what I'm praying for. He says, you've got to get it. The Father will answer that prayer. And then in verse 17. This is the sweetest fruit of all. He comes right back to it. That you love one another. That you love one another as he loved them, as he loves them with him in heaven, and as he loves us even now. He's going to soon lay down his life for his friends. That's what it means to love one another. We'll lay down our lives for our friends, for one another, for our brothers and sisters. Not as martyrs, not yet, maybe soon. But by denying ourselves for one another. Hmm. In other words, when a brother or sister has a need and it's inconvenient for me to meet it now. I love that brother or sister by denying myself and helping them meet that need. Now I know that's very general but I don't want to get any more specific than that. Denying ourselves for one another when it costs when it costs me time, when it costs me rest, when it costs me money. See, that's loving one another. Intentionally encouraging one another. That's loving one another. The way he loves, he loves us. Every time we read his word, he's encouraging us. Come unto me all you who labor and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Man, that's encouragement. Mm. Forgiving one another when we're actually wronged. Not when we think somebody has offended us, but when they actually have done something to hurt us, and yet we forgive one another. That's loving one another. Praying specifically for one another. He prays for us. We pray for one another. It's back to that old definition. This I command you, that you love one another, that you <coughs> willfully, determinately seek what is best for the other, even when it's not returned, even when it costs you. That's what he's talking about. Our Lord has repeated the command to love one another, that is our brothers and sisters, three times, twice in six verses. Do you suppose he's making a point? Is loving one another an option? No. It's a commandment. But who's making the command? 
The Lord God omnipotent become human is the one that's making the command. The one who's going to go to the cross in just a few hours for them and for us is the one who's making the command. The Lord God omnipotent incarnate who has said to the likes of us you're my friends. <laughs> so we gratefully obey him and love one another. We love him, First John says, because he first loved us. We love him and therefore we love one another because he commanded us to love one another. And by the way, we love one another because he whom we love lives in each of our brothers and sisters. So if I love you, I'm loving him. That's the reason I can love you. It's because he chose you. He indwells you. If I don't love you, I don't love him. Mm. This really wasn't all that technical, was it? This really wasn't all that, wow, this is new information that I didn't know. No, this is the old stuff. We just needed to be reminded. Love one another. Stand with me, please. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. And we're dismissed. <laughs>